Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 6th of July. I'm Anthony Day and a special welcome to my latest patrons Sheila Jones and Mark Rutherford. I've called this episode The Elephant in the Room. Why The Elephant in the Room? Because it's very big, it's a serious problem and nobody wants to talk about it. Quite a lot of people refuse to admit that it's there. Listener Eric de Kemp has told me about a big and important problem in the Canadian oil industry, and we'll learn about that in a minute. First, I want to talk about a big and important problem closer to home, my home in the UK. It's an elephant called Brexit. For those of you not listening in the UK, let me remind you that the British government is leading the United Kingdom to leave the European Union after some 40 years of close integration. Not everybody thinks that's a good idea, which is probably why the governing party is totally split on the issue, and so is the official opposition. Business leaders warn that it's likely to cost jobs, the value of the pound sterling has declined, and 100,000 people marched on Parliament last month to protest against it. During our time as members of the EU, we've become involved in some 40 regulatory agencies covering everything from health and safety, radioisotopes, medicine and drugs, to air travel, food security and consumer rights. As a consequence of Brexit, instead of sharing the costs of these institutions with the other 27 member states, the United Kingdom is going to set up regulatory agencies of its own. As it does so, the relevant bodies of European legislation will be transformed into UK laws. Of course, as this transfer takes place, the government can tweak and tailor as it sees fit, and there's a lot of controversy about how this will be done, involving both Henry VIII and the Scots, don't ask. Today, I'm going to look specifically at how this will affect environmental regulation. The Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, IEMA, has published its briefing and initial position on the DEFRA Environmental Principles and Governance Consultation. DEFRA is the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. This consultation is to help the government formulate its environmental policies after Brexit. I've been able to talk to Martin Baxter, Chief Policy Advisor at IEMA, about this. Martin, thank you very much for taking time to join us here on the Sustainable Futures Report. Now, as far as this consultation is concerned, the first question is, is it still open? Can we uh, continue to add our opinions? Uh, Yeah, the consultation is still open. There were some amendments made in the withdrawal bill, which dealt with some of the aspects in the consultation, but there's a lot more issues to be dealt with, and we'll be making a full contribution from IEMA into this process. Right. Now, I've read your document and I get the impression from that that you feel it doesn't go that, that you don't you feel that the government strategy doesn't go far enough. Now, um, I think it was David Cameron who said we are going to be the first generation to leave the environment in a better state than we found it. And the government has recently published its 25 year plan for the environment. But I don't think you believe that what they are proposing now will actually achieve either of those objectives. Yeah, I think I think there are two points. Firstly, since the government's 
position was first published, then there have been changes made uh, through the withdrawal bill, which does influence the consultation and strengthens um, what was initially going to be proposed. So from our perspective, we think that that's uh, beneficial. Um, so the environmental principles are now going to be framed in primary legislation themselves. Um, and secondly, um, the new independent body will have the power to take government to court for failure to um, meet environmental laws and regulations. Right, well, let's, let's break that down a bit, shall we? Um, yeah. These first principles, which underpin it, I think they're fairly close to the ones which are uh, adopted by the EU. Sustainable development, the precautionary principle, the prevention principle, the polluter pays principle, rectification at source, the integration principle. There's a couple more you think should have been added in. Yeah, certainly. We we think that the innovation principle um, could be added um, so that policy or regulatory decisions and con controls should consider the role of innovation as a driver of jobs, growth, social and environmental improvements. I think um, there's a, a question of the extent to which the precautionary principle, if misapplied, can act as a break um, to development which could move forward. And I think that that would sit quite well next to an innovation principle. So we think that they, they could work together uh, very well. We also raised issues around transparency and inclusivity. I think to a certain extent, the withdrawal bill has dealt with that through public access to environmental justice. Um, so really what the government has done there is frame some principles around the Our House Convention um, which gives people the opportunity to request environmental information, to be involved in decision-making, and to be given access to environmental justice. So to some extent, that one's been dealt with as, as well. Right. Now, you expressed some concerns about how these principles would actually be incorporated into the legislation, and you quoted a couple of options. The, the first option was that these specific pr principles would be stated in the legislation which goes through Parliament. The second option, I'm not quite clear on, and you weren't very keen on it. Can you clarify that? <laughs> yeah, so in, in the governance consultation, there were two options. One is to actually list the principles in primary legislation. Um, so the primary legislation will talk about the precautionary principle, the polluter pays, etc. Um, the second option was to have a requirement that a statutory um, policy statement has to be established, which would have the principles in them, but the principles themselves wouldn't have applied, appeared in primary legislation. Our strong view was that option one would, was definitely preferable. And indeed, as a result of amendments that were put down in the Lords and then subsequently amended by um, Conservative MEP, uh, members of Parliament, um, the withdrawal bill has dealt with this. And actually, there is now a commitment in law that um, within the next six months, a draft bill will be put to Parliament and those principles will be written into primary legislation. Right, OK, because I think there was some concern about the so-called Henry VIII powers. In other words, these principles could have been at the discretion of the Secretary of State and not actually embodied in the legislation. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And now there's, there's no doubt that those principles which are now listed in the withdrawal bill um, will be included.
Right, okay. In primary legislation. That said, they could be added to, and that's where certainly on the innovation principle we will be advocating um, that that is included. But overall, you know, we think that the... um, the decisions and how and how that's come forward in the withdrawal bill in terms of environmental principles um, is the right step forward. Right. Well, once you've got regulations in place, they're of no use at all unless they can be enforced and um, no use at all unless people who break them can be uh, penalised. So they're going to set up, set up a statutory arm's length body. But uh, yeah. you, you had some doubts about the, the, the powers and whether, in fact, the statutory arm's length body could call the government to account. Yeah, so in the consultation, there was no scope for the government to be taken to court um, or to be held to account for failure to implement uh, environmental laws. Now, as our membership of the EU, um, the European Commission fulfills that role and is able to take member states to court for non-implementation and issue um, infraction of proceedings against countries um, for failure to implement requirements. And the way in which the withdrawal bill was first developed, then we would lose that that opportunity to have a body that could do that. And therefore, you would have to have relied on for example, NGOs having to crowdsource funding to try and take uh, a judicial review. Now what we have is the opportunity for the creation of this new independent body um, that we will be pushing to ensure is funded by Parliament, so is resourced by Parliament, not by government itself, because if it's going to hold government to account, it needs to have the resources to do so, and it needs that backstop power to be able to take government to court for failure to fulfil its legal requirements. Yeah, I, I have some concerns about this whole thing because if a statutory body takes the government to account and say it finds the government, that's just putting money from one pocket into another. Uh, and in, under the under the present situation, we've seen the government be uh, prosecuted by the European Commission over air quality. I think it's been prosecuted three times. It's been prosecuted by independent lawyers as well. It loses every time. So is there actually a real safeguard? Is there actually a mechanism by which we can ensure that once this legislation has been put in place, it will be respected, not only by the government, but by all all concerned? Well, I, I certainly expect so. The... Um, the, key, the key point about having this in law is that ultimately it is individual ministers who, uh, who carry the can for failure to implement requirements. Now, um, government has been, as you as you note, uh, tanked court by client earth for failure to um, address air quality issues. On each occasion, they've improved their proposals. Now, the question is always going to be, have they done so sufficiently? Um, but the court has um, forced government to take additional action. So, to my mind, that is um, the system. Okay, it's, it's the back end of the system because it is actually changing the way in which government is developing its policy and approach to air quality. Um, I think we can argue about whether it is fast enough and whether it should have done this in a more holistic and proper way in the first place. Um, and, and I would certainly accept that. But there is that overarching threat um, from infraction proceedings by the by the EU against the UK and other member states as well, because the UK is not on its own in terms of failure to meet air quality requirements. Um, But the Commission doesn't, you know, you don't, the Commission doesn't take um, 
governments to courts um, or issue inf infraction proceedings lightly. So there's a process that it goes through um, to be able to, to, to take that action. And are there signs that the government is actually not only saying that it's changing its policy, but actually implementing changes to the way that it is uh, dealing with, um, well, air quality in this example? Um, well, yeah, I, I think if you look at where um, government has uh, taken its action, it has been more comprehensive. I don't think we could say for sure that um, what is planned is necessarily the most appropriate way, but it is for each country to, to decide how they do this. So government is clearly pushing this down onto local authorities and making those accountable for air quality in their local areas. In some places, you have um, city mayors taking maybe more unilateral action as well. Um, the upshot is that we do anticipate that um, air quality will be improved in urban areas. Right. Well, going back to the, the broad picture of environmental regulation, you've submitted this uh, document to the consultation and, and it seems to have been overtaken to some extent by events. Are you going to go further and uh, issue a revised document or, or make further comments to the government on this? Yeah, certainly. So the consultation is still open until the beginning of August. Um, and in terms of IEMA's response, there are two parts to our um, initial position which we set out and which we are continuing to develop during this consultation process. Incidentally, we've also submitted evidence to the Environmental Audit Select Committee's inquiry as well. I think the principles and governance aspects are part of the answer, but it's important to recognise that effectively what they do is try to recreate the status quo in UK law as we leave the EU. So the environmental principles are written into the treaties and that's and they say that European environmental policy will be developed in line with these principles. The way in which this has come forward now in the withdrawal bill effectively replicates that in the UK, similarly giving the powers to this new independent body to be able to hold government to account and potentially, if necessary, take legal action. Again, that's that mirrors the European Commission's um, role in being able to issue infraction proceedings against member states. So, that's dead. Well, I, th I think the key thing, though, is that our environment continues to decline and the government has a stated ambition to enhance the natural capital asset base over a generation. And so our view is that greater ambition is needed um, within this forthcoming bill um, to create a framework where the natural environment will be enhanced over a generation. And we've set out our proposals about how that should be taken forward. So they're moving in the right direction, but there's still more to be done. Absolutely. I mean, we think that if you have an intention to leave the environment in a better state over the next 25 years, then you need to have a governance framework in the UK that's going to deliver that. So for us, that's about um, having legally binding goals supported by targets, milestones, metrics for key environmental outcomes. So whether that's around biodiversity, fresh water, air quality, etc. It's about having regular updates, probably five years, to the 25-year environment plan that the government published um, so that we know how we're going to achieve those goals and targets. It's having a fully funded and resourced five-year programme of activity within each parliament to deliver actions to meet those targets and milestones. So I think that those are the sorts of things that we will be pushing into the bill. 
um, so that we can turn um, words on a piece of paper into concrete proposals for action. IEMA is clearly not alone. There'll be a lot of professional organisations and other stakeholders which will be submitting to this consultation. Do you think that individual members of IEMA should uh, make their voice heard as well? And for, for that matter, anybody else, whether they're a member or not, should, should they take part in this consultation? Absolutely. We've been very clear by trying to get out early with our initial position and sharing that as widely as we can. What we're hoping to do is to catalyze other people to get involved. In terms of our own IEMA activity, we have a number of workshops around the country um, so that individuals can get involved in that activity. We've got a webinar. Um, so we are promoting our position as widely as possible rather than waiting to the last possible moment to um, get, our, get our consultation response in. Um, and we've been collaborating with other professional bodies, for example, through the environmental policy forum to share our thinking and ideas so that people can build on what we've developed in terms of our initial thinking and we can move this forward collaboratively. You mentioned a webinar, is that open to everybody or just to members? Yeah, no that's open to everybody, people can book on through our website. And your website is iema.net? Yes, that's right. And and I think I, I'm right, that's on the 9th of July, is that correct? It is, yes, lunchtime. Good. 12.30. Good, good. And will you publish a recording for those who can't make it? Yes, uh, we record all of our webinars and within a, an hour or so of the, the, the session finishing, they're up on the website available for people to uh, watch again. That's great. Well, I'll put a link on the blog version of this. Uh, anything you'd like to add, Martin? Yeah, I think... I think this is a really exciting time for the environment and sustainability more generally. Um, at times of change, it can always be a question of what are you going to lose? So what's at risk? Um, and for us, what we've done is said, well, actually, we, we've got to turn this into an opportunity. Um, there has to be um, a way of us doing things better. Um, potentially, we can be more focused on developing a governance framework that will work for the UK and deliver better environmental outcomes in ways which um, we could potentially be faster at developing. And I think it's incumbent on us to take that opportunity. Um, and so we think that by being bold and ambitious, we can lead to a better future. Um, and if we don't try, we should not complain. So, yeah, we're definitely sort of hoping to catalyse people to get involved and create the future they want. Martin, thank you very much for talking to the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you. Martin Baxter is the Chief Policy Advisor at the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. As I mentioned at the beginning, listener Eric de Kemp got in touch about issues in the Canadian oil industry. He sent me links to radio broadcasts, including one where the Prime Minister of British Columbia explained how he had been contacted very early that morning by Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Premier, to say that the government had purchased the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I've put the links on the blog at all the W's sustainablefutures.report. There is an existing Trans Mountain Pipeline, but Trudeau was talking about the new pipeline designed to triple capacity. Although they take different routes, both pipelines go from Edmonton in Alberta to Vancouver on the west coast of British Columbia. 
The purpose of the pipeline is to transport oil from the Alberta tar sands to the port at Vancouver for onward shipment to markets in Asia. For many years, the majority of Canadian oil has been sold into the United States, but at much lower prices than are available from Asia, hence the desire to ship the oil out to new markets. Of course, there's continuing controversy about the whole tar sands oil extraction process. It requires significant inputs of energy to soften the material and separate the tar from the sand. It typically uses steam, which means there are vast ponds of contaminated water as a byproduct. Oil is a fossil fuel. Burning fossil fuels releases greenhouse gases, and it is well known that we can burn only so much of the world's fossil fuel reserves before we make the planet uninhabitable. On the other side, oil production creates jobs and delivers wealth. Presumably the Canadians of Alberta believe that other producers should restrict their output in order to save the planet while they keep pumping the tar. The pipeline from Edmonton travels west from the province of Alberta across the province of British Columbia. There's been much controversy about the route of the new pipeline, particularly about the plan to drive it through the tribal lands of indigenous peoples. Quite apart from the disruption caused by constructing the pipeline, there are concerns about the risks of pipeline failure and oil spillage, which, can, which could contaminate the water table and pollute the lands forever. There has been an ongoing dispute between British Columbia and Alberta, becoming increasingly acrimonious. Kinder Morgan, American owners of the original pipeline and developers of the new one, lost patience and threatened to pull out of the project altogether. This led the Canadian government to step in and purchase the pipeline for a reported figure which varies between $3 billion and $4 billion. Justin Trudeau's credibility as protector of the environment has taken a severe knock, and no wonder that the Premier of British Columbia sounds shocked on that radio broadcast, which was recorded just after he'd been woken up, to be told that the pipeline would go ahead regardless of what the government of British Columbia decided. I strongly recommend that you go to the blog at sustainablefutures.report and follow the Globe and Mail link. This is one of the best visual presentations that I've seen and not only shows how the pipeline will reach the coast, but highlights the risks involved in shipping the oil out. The port of Vancouver is approached along a narrow seaway around Vancouver Island and through an archipelago of many smaller islands. Environmentalists claim that since this is one of the busiest and most tortuous shipping routes in the world, the risk of a collision or a grounding and a catastrophic oil spill are enormous. For the moment, though, the project seems to be going ahead. The Guardian newspaper quotes Greenpeace campaigner Mike Hudemer, Trudeau is gambling billions of Canadian taxpayer dollars on an oil project that'll never be built, a project that Kinder Morgan itself has indicated is untenable and that faces more than a dozen lawsuits, crumbling economics and a growing resistance movement that is spreading around the world. As I say, as of now, it's still going ahead. In the past, I've drawn your attention to Jeremy Leggett and his website at allthews.jeremyleggett.net. 
On the blog, there's a link to one of his latest blogs. He calls it The Week of the White Elephants. There's a theme here somewhere. He's picked up the story of how the Canadian government is bailing out the Trans Mountain Pipeline of public money, and he also highlights other governments investing in projects which he sees as white elephants. Apparently, the US Energy Department has plans to force utilities to purchase electricity from failing coal and nuclear plants. In the UK, after decades of insisting that there should be no more nuclear and that power generation should be in the hands of the private sector, the British government has announced a public investment in a new nuclear plant in Wales. Leggett also includes a chart which shows how renewables, particularly onshore wind and solar, now generate electricity more cheaply than nuclear, coal or gas. But of course, as far as the British government is concerned, we've had enough of experts, and government decision-making amply demonstrates that. That's why onshore wind, the most cost-effective source of renewable energy, is effectively banned in the UK, while there are proposals to exempt fracking from local planning regulations. More on that in a future episode. Well, that's all for this episode. But it's not all for this month. I've said that the Sustainable Futures report would only be monthly from now on, but I've got an interview on the Sustainable Development Goals, and that will be available on Friday the 20th of July. If you're a patron, you already have access to it. The next episode after that is scheduled for Friday the 4th of August, but there's so much going on that I may slip in yet another bonus episode. Yes, this is Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. And thank you for listening and thank you for your ideas. I'm particularly grateful this month to Eric de Kemp and, of course, to Martin Baxter of IEMA. Thanks for the info on the carbon tax, Eric. Not enough time this time, I'm afraid. Please continue to let me have your ideas and let me take this opportunity to thank you for being a patron, if you are. And if you're not, you might like to be one for as little as a dollar a month. Just hop across to patreon.com slash SFR. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SFR. And it all helps me to pay the hosting costs and for hosting the archive as well. And that really is it for this month. Don't forget 20th of July for the next episode. I'm Anthony Day. Bye for now. <laughs>